0: History lecture fifty Rabbi Uh We're talking about Herod today. Herod and the Gdolim of his day, uh, Hillel and Shammai. Yeah, I mentioned I mentioned Herod Herod and his paranoia last week. I mentioned the line that they say about Herod. I think so. It's not that I'm paranoid. You'd be paranoid too if everybody was out to get you. The uh, Herod now has just cut a deal with his with Augustus and Mark Anthony and the ruling powers back in Rome, and they they like him. And part of his part of his new power is he enjoys the same status as his father Antipatros, who was assassinated. But you remember, Antipatros didn't have to pay tax money to Rome a big deal in the ancient world. Why would that be? Why would the major power exempt a person if they perceived in him a loyal subject? It was kind of an insurance policy. If that man's not paying taxes, he's collecting taxes, he's got the greatest vested interest in maintaining law and order. And the Romans as perfectionists of this world, and we'll see this, we'll see this in the coming uh, couple centuries, they absolutely demanded on law and order. If you messed up their system, they were, they were genocidal. As the Jews will try to mess up their system and they'll they never forgive us for it. So, so he retained his father's exemption from paying taxes, but being no fool himself, he collected exorbitant taxes. He was a brute. He never lost his brutish ways when he comes back and he collects, he squeezes the local inhabitants, all the Jews of Judea from everything that they have. He not only does that, he goes about plundering the treasures of the base of Mikdash. He goes in and plunders ancient graves where he, he knew that they were, were some, there were some treasures buried. He becomes the uh, richest of all the rulers in all of Bayesheni, and one of the richest men of the ancient world. And with his wealth, he uses his wealth to build, literally to build, uh, uh, to build more symbolically a legacy for himself. Uh, if you really, uh, Herod is a, is a, is a, is a topic of, of studies, of research, and he is somebody that you might want to try to figure out what his psychological profile is. He's somebody who's utterly detestable and yet had a had a clear desire to be loved and remembered. And one of the ways you do that, you see that you see similar phenomena today with people who are uh, who make. All kinds of crooked business dealings, but then they feel guilty sitting on all that crooked money. So they donate buildings and institutions, and they like their names to be to be uh, featured prominently on the letterhead and on all the uh, public public structures of the building because they want they want to some they feel that somehow if I can have a yeshiva named after me somehow that justifies everything. I know of a rosh yeshiva. Uh, I don't know if you know what it is to be a Russian yeshiva nowadays, uh, but not not uh, easy to make payroll from month to month. It's, these are not these are not these are not institutions that are rolling in money. And this yeshiva was given a potential donation of I think it was twenty thousand dollars, and it was dirty money. And he said, "No, thank you. He didn't want the money. He, want, he, want, he said, you 'You can't just buy your, buy off your sins that easily.' So, no, thank you, sir. Jake, and then Arya. He said, and um, he defiled the grave because it had treasure how can, tre- How can graves have treasures in them? And it's not it a did, Jewish practice. Money is for have, Olam Haze, not for Olam Ha, correct. they have tre- treasures in them, then they probably be the who died, like, defiled, like, right? Right, right. It's a question. That's what Chazal tells us. Uh, it could be the aberrant practices of the time. For example, Hellenized cultures most certainly did bury with, with treasures, and people presumably came to graves at Sadiqim and left treasures there as a tribute, you know, thinking perhaps. Classic Greek. Think about Greek, Greek mentality. It's all about this world. And somehow, as emerging the Hellenist ideals, ideas with the Jewish uh, understanding of the sanctity of, of, of holy people, maybe if I leave the tzaddik with a greater, uh, more more elaborate tribute in his in his in his grave, it'll help me in Olam Ha and somehow. Was 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 the thinking? So I, 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 again, these are not. This doesn't mean that it's normative, but this is what this is what's told to us that he did. Are you? Yeah. Um. Good question. Named, uh, John Rockefeller did the exact same thing. He was actually a detestable person. And he, he had a virtual monopoly on the oil business. And what he did was, to improve his self-image, he just he put up buildings, donated tons of centers. For example, down the street and around the corner, just off to the left, is the Rockefeller, as you say the name Rockefeller, Rockefeller Museum of Antiquities in East Jerusalem right across from the Old City, in, 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 deeply into Jerusalem. I just, on the bus on Thursday, told the story of what happened with the uh, display. The Jordanians kept their dead sea scrolls there. And in the Six-Day War, they lost them to the, uh, to, to, to the Israelis and are suing, suing Israel. till today, they want their dead sea scrolls back over in the Rockefeller Museum. Yeah, Daniel. There was a story. But not a really a story? Oh, uh, it was just a, a rabbi who wanted to be buried in socks for some reason. Oh uh, yeah. Yes. Uh, what was the To prove that, that you couldn't be buried even with a pair of socks. Yes. So he was very rich, right? I'm correct this one. He was very rich, and uh, and he left two letters. One to be over at the and one to be over at the Shlotem, right? And uh, the first one said, "Bury me in this special pair of socks," you know, in my drawer. And uh, they, they went around asking, and you know, the said, like, no. And they were like, it's such a big remedy. Obviously, you had a reason for it. They were like, uh, no, can't. So then, at the solution, they opened the section, He's like, and you see, can't even take a pair of socks? Because obviously, hopefully, you can't. Right, bear, right. You know, it's a nice Moser Haskell. You can't yeah, even assume. Socks, yeah, go there ahead. There was a story, like, I think 2007, this guy. The one thing he wanted to be buried with was his, like, his Hummer. Yeah. And he, they literally put his coffin in his Hummer, then buried the Hummer. Okay. Okay. So Herod became one of the wealthiest men in the ancient world. Um, one of his ways, one of his ways to power was he was, as we said, absolutely murderous, and he killed his way to power. Anybody who he perceived as a threat, he usually had murdered. That referred to close friends, family members, wives, children. Uh, he really didn't stop at anybody, as we're going to see quite literally. Um, he also killed off most of the Kahami, most of the members of the Sanhedrin of his day, uh, he, had a, he, he was threatened by that specifically because the posuk says Mikerev achecha lasimalecha melech, when you place upon you a king and Herod absolutely was a self-styled king in his own mind he was the king of the Jews even though we know very clearly a son of converts cannot be uh, and not only that, even a son of a Jew can't be unless he comes from the house of David so here he says explicitly, from among your brothers put upon you a king, and Chazal, he asked them how they Darshaned it. They said, oh, you know, this excludes people like Avodim and Gerim, uh, which Herod was most definitely in one or both of those categories, as in Ebknani, as we talked about in the past, and also as a child of, of converts. Um, and so he did the Herodian thing under the circumstances and simply killed them when they, when they didn't give him the answer that he preferred. That was Herod's way of solving problems. Uh, other kids have temper tantrums. This was Herod's way of having a temper tantrum. He spared Shammai. And you remember the story we told last week? Shammai, after all, had won his grudging respect when Shammai was the only member of the Sanhedrin to stand up to him. And remember Shammai's ominous warning. He said, this man that you cower in front of, that you... That you, you uh, you're intimidated one day will rise up above you and have his weight and have his a revenge on you and indeed we see it coming true um, in these days um, he also herod also spared a great figure named bava ben buta this is based on the gemara the same gemara we keep referring to uh, in baba basra very uh, the, the definitive gemara baba ben buta he had a special cruelty towards he kept him alive uh, he kept Baba Ben Buta alive uh, as a source of advice, but so he wouldn't be too threatening. He blotted out Baba's eyes with porcupine pins. Uh, yeah, Herod was, was, was really among the, among the, uh, the, the most vile of, of, of individuals that we've encountered to, to date. Um, and yet, he considered himself Shomer Torah Mitzvos. He was Jewish. And he kept, to his own accounting, 610 mitzvahs, but I mean religiously. What's 610. What's oh, the three didn't keep? Oh, you're such a. You're so demanding, Daniel. Three mitzvahs. Okay, so 610, and you, you don't forgive him those three. Okay, fine. You want three mitzvahs? When it came to abu idolatry, and a little bit of um, dabbling here in the, the Arayos and the, all the forbidden. Uh, unions and uh, a little bit of murder on the side, so he wasn't so careful. But 610 isn't bad, uh, that's, the, that's the joke that's told about Herod, but it's really true. He really, he, he did consider people. himself, he did take pains, he, he identified with Kali Yisrael to some degree, uh, he was a deluded individual. But when it came to what we call the big three, the yehareg baliav or those that a person has to die and not transgress, um, and we, we find we find many examples of all of the above. He was king, that. Was that a king back then? and you said well, he that was saw a... himself as king, he was really the <laughs> local puppet, puppet governor of the Roman Empire. But yeah, okay, fine. And he, so saw that... I was entitled, you said. Yeah, king, he get was king, king, the king, can get away with the average mortal can't do. He was the Nietzschean Superman, Raskolnikov. That was that was how Herod Herod saw himself and he, he he had license. But how do I how do I why am I Mediaic that uh, that Herod saw himself in keeping mitzvah? So interesting offhanded comment in Josephus, we'll be talking about Josephus soon enough. Josephus makes a comment about the era in, in his book of antiquities, he said at one point uh, neighboring king Celius, who's from Arabia, once sends to Herod for the hand of Herod's sister Shlomis. Shlomi, sometimes called Shlomi, he wants to marry uh, Herod's sister, and Herod um, says, okay, if you convert, I'll accept you if you convert, and and, and Seleus refuses to convert, and so Herod says, no deal, the deal is off. Even though Her- uh, Josephus makes it clear, Herod would have gained a lot by such a union. That was the way the ancient world worked: is through marriage you made alliances, and he would have he would have had politically ad- advan- he would have been a politically advantage had he accepted. But because of Torah Mitzvahs, he refused. So people, full people, full I mean, I, I think again, I think Herod's psychology is particularly interesting and informative. We have a bit of, it, of this in us, too, no? There's certain things that absolutely we wouldn't compromise. We've internalized, this is something that I do, this is something that I don't do, and, and Baruch Hashem, it's very good, don't get me wrong, these are, these are correct things. If they're in the Torah, if they're in the Rabbanon, these are, these are proper ref, uh, intu- intuitive reflexes. That if, if you, I, I, I give the example, of you stick a chicken and cheese sandwich in my face, I wouldn't think of it, wouldn't even touch the stuff. And that's the Rabbana, it's Nisad an the And other things, sometimes other big things, uh, people are somehow negligent. And the example that I give, of course, is the, the, what they call today Nagia, which is a clear cut Nisad the for men and women to have physical contact. People say, oh, well, I'm not machmir on that. They pick and choose and they have a distorted impression about what the mitzvahs are. And Herod may be a great example of that, but he's certainly not alone. Yeah, Barak? But he didn't really think that he was keeping all of the mitzvah, Because he's not an icon. As I said, he was a deluded individual most people have to when they wake up and they look at themselves in the mirror have to live with themselves so most of us have it all worked out we've rationalized this is the way i am and this is the best way of being don't most of us think that yeah, yeah. it's hard to live with yourself if you don't think that on some level we have it all worked out and rationalized so yeah Herod was no exception to that rule most of us are deluded most of us rationalize he he did on the and the Levy. yeah okay right okay so he had it twisted now uh Meanwhile, and you have your, your um, Hasmonean family tree at your disposal here. Meanwhile, we've got, and, and you're progressively making exes as they get killed off, because most of the Hasmoneans die pretty bloody deaths. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. It was a joke. You're being overly medayac on my joke. Fair uh, enough. No, clearly, you today, we can only keep, specific at them. our best, at our best, we'd be zochim to keep 270 mitzvahs. That's the maximum anybody could possibly do, and even then, that's uh, that's a long shot for most people. Right? When was the last time you brought your racist gaze to the Cohen? I did. Uh, how about your pete rechem chamor, your your firstborn donkey? Also to the Cohen. These are all doable, by the way. You just have to know how to go about. Doable for me. My my have a farm. Okay, so that's absolutely. <laughs> You, 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 by all means, make, it, make every, every attempt to keep every mitzvah possible. So now, back to, our, back to our timeline. You remember, Aristobulus has been killed off. Um, Alexandrus has been killed off, his son. Hyrcanus, the, the older brother, who liked the good life, was the weak, weak of the older brother, the, the surviving brother of Shlomsyon and Yanai, he's still around. You remember, he's without an ear. His nephew, Aristobulus had cut off the ear in battle and he fled to Babel. And now he has designs to return. He, he likes the good life, he likes the power, like most of the Hellenized Jews, like most of the Hasmoneans, who became Hellenized. He wants to come back and he's, he ignores everybody's better advice. Don't go, Hyrcanus, and he comes back. And he's got political ambitions and Herod, Is happy to have the man back. He Herod recognizes a fool whenever when he meets one, and he says, "Come, Hyrcanus," and he installs he installs Hyrcanus in some low position of power. Um, Now, Herod is married, you remember, to Miriamy. Miriamy, if you look at your family tree, is the daughter is Herod is married to the daughter of um, Alexander, so that would be the she is the uh, great niece. She's the great-niece of Hyrcanus, but actually she's the daughter of Alexandra and Alexander. So it's Alexandra, the daughter of Hyrcanus, and her father, they they were cousins. Her father, uh, Alexander, was Alexander's cousin to the son of Aristobulus. So Hyrcanus is her grandfather from her mother's side and her great-uncle from her father's side, if you you get all that. Okay, so um, Miriam and, and Alexandra, the queen mother, as it were, um, are pressuring Herod. See, Miriam, Miriam, not on your list, but you can put him down now. Miriami has a brother. Alexander has a son um, who's named Aristobulus ben Alexandros. And they all have the, the same names, just to make our life confusing. Right? So Aristobulus, the son of Alexandros, is a 17-year-old boy and he's been out of town, but the um, women are pestering Herod. Herod, he's going to be, he, you've got to bring him back. He's from the, he's from the line of the Hashmonaim, and you have to install him as the new Kohen Gadol. And finally, Herod gives in to their pressure. And so he installs Aristobulus as a kid, he's 17 years old, and he's the new Kohen Gadol. And he's a handsome young man, and uh, he's got the Hasmonean lineage, and the next year at Sukkos he has this angelic being about him and the the nation is mesmerized by him uh and herod is not a happy camper herod doesn't like anybody to steal the limelight so herod does the herodian thing under the circumstance after Yantif is over he says hey everybody let's go retire to my jericho palace my palace off in yericho and we'll have a feast we'll have a pool party so herod has a pool party And he says to his men, um, when the kid's uh, playing around inside, you make sure you play extra rough with him. And as instructed, they do play rough and they drown the unsuspecting new Kohen Gadol. So as quickly as you wrote his name on your family tree, Aristobulus ben Alexandros, you can write another X there. Because Herod has him, typically to Herod's ways, Herod has him murdered. Um, Alexandra, who's the mother of the murdered boy, and the mother of Miriami. You're following all this? I told you there are a lot of names and personalities to keep track of. I, I lost the There's like too many Alexanders. Like I know, I know. They all have the same names. Again, she's the daughter of Herkinus, And she's the mother of Miriam, Herod's wife. And she was also the mother of this, this murdered Kohen Gadol, this 17-year-old boy. And she's none too pleased. But because she's in the family, and she has her own chashibus, her own relative importance, she has uh, connections with the queen of Egypt, Cleopatra. And she appeals to Pe- Cleopatra. She says, she says, you have to do something about Herod. He murdered my son. Cleopatra is impressed. She, she appeals to her uh, beloved, who's her beloved. Jewish history merges with, with general history. Mark Anthony. You've never read Shakespeare's Cleopatra and Mark Anthony. So she, appe- she appeals to Mark Anthony. Mark Anthony and Cleopatra call Herod. They rebuke Herod uh, for, his, for his ways. And it's just a rebuke; it's nothing much more, ser- much more serious and Herod turns on them and he does what Herod always does with the Roman powers, he charms them. And he ingratiates them and he brings them lots of gifts because he's rich, you remember, and uh, nothing happens. Meanwhile, the intrigue goes on and it's much more than I'm giving you. I'm giving you just a taste of the times. There's so much more that, 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 to be told, but I want to give you at least a flavor of what goes on. Miriamy, Herod's one of Herod's many wives, but the one wife who, according to Josephus' story, I have to try to meld this with the Gemara and Baba Basra, but according to Josephus' telling, um, she was the descendant of the Hasmonean family. She discovers that Herod plans to kill her too. Uh, this time, Herod wants to kill her, not unlike all the other murders that by Herod is pretty predictable. Anybody who he sees as a threat as a possible, as, as, as somebody who might take his power, he murders, in this case, Herod, he, uh, she, discovered, she <laughs> discovers wants to murder her because he's afraid that somebody uh, else might be with her. And he was a jealous fellow, uh, and so he plans to have her murdered for this reason. Um, and uh, she tries to take precautions. Herod comes back, he's outraged at his mother-in-law, Alexandra, he throws her into prison, and then eventually has Alexandra's father, Hyrcanus, strangled. So Hyrcanus came back, was installed temporarily, but Herod's not having any competition, and Hyrcanus is now stranded, you could draw another X there. It's not looking good for the Hasmonean family. Um, meanwhile, out in Rome, Mark Anthony fights Caesar, loses, and together with his beloved Cleopatra they commit suicide uh, and Herod had taken the side of Mark Anthony so now Herod's got to make amends with Caesar and that's what he does he goes to Caesar Augustus he says no no you don't understand I was loyal to Mark Anthony only because I was loyal to the Empire at large it was not out of uh, ab- abandoning you Caesar and uh, Augustus falls for it and Augustus says, Herod, you're fine, and he, in fact, enlarges Herod's empire and his wealth. He gives him he gives him his own um, Caesarly gift. Herod returns now, newly empowered. Miriamis scorns him. Uh, Herod has a sister I mentioned, her name is Shlomi. Um, Shlomi doesn't like Miriamis, she tries to frame her. I mean, it would make a great, uh, so, um, int- it really would, right? So Shlomi now wants to frame her sister-in-law Miriamis. Uh, Alexandra, who's Miriam's mother, is afraid of her own self, and she's in prison, and she accuses her daughter. These were not, these were not the most um, commendable individuals. Miriam, though, seems to be a uh, but she's given the death sentence by Herod Sanhedrin. This is all Josephus is telling. Um, how do you parse all this a seemingly contradictory account in the Gemara and Baba Basra that says that before Herod even married Miriami doesn't he identify as Miriami, the sole survivor of the Hasmonean family? She was already dead. What's that? She was already dead. So what did she do? She went to the roof and she jumps off and she says, whoever says that he descends from the Hasmonean, he's, he's actually betraying his own identity. He's truly an Abid. So, one explanation, Rav Rottenberg, who writes, honestly, one of my favorite (laughs) all-time accounts of history, Rav Rav Shlomo Rottenberg is the author of the Toldos Am Olam, which I warmly recommend to you. It's a a much more elaborate retelling of history than I'm giving over. Anyway, he tries to reconcile Josephus with the Gemara Bavastra, and he tries to merge the stories and says, no, Miriam really was married to Herod all this time, and it's exactly at this moment so that she, can't, she won't give Herod the satisfaction of having her killed by the Sanhedrin. Instead, it's now that she goes, she climbs to the roof, and she jumps to her death. Um, Doesn't her, like, that's a possible way of reconciling it. I think that sometimes the historians try too hard to reconcile these sometimes unreconcilable, contradictory sources. I'm happier just saying I don't get it. It, doesn't seem to, it seems to be too forced to my liking and not intellectually honest enough. So I don't understand how they all work together. and They don't have to, there's no nafkamina. What we do know, and the Gemara says this true, uh, absolutely true, that Herod loved this figure. And Gemara says this, that he preserved her body in honey. Um, and the Gemara presents two reasons. One, so that, so that, um, he was ever concerned about paranoid about his position, knowing that he was not a legitimate king, uh, he he uh, had no he had only he was a gair, and again that posuk always always plagued him, that it only could be from among your people, not from the gear. Uh, so he would always when she was alive, bring out his wife and say, See, I'm married to the Hasmonean dynasty, I'm there for, I therefore have legitimacy. Um, so presumably the Gemara says, even after death, uh, he can do He also, when people said, Herod, are you really a legitimate king? And Herod would say, well, you tell him, honey. That's where the expression comes from, I presume, right? Husbands calling their wife as such. Uh, And then she'd be there, preserved in honey. Uh, That's one shot in the Gemara. The second shot is he preserved her body in honey. Do I have to spell out the rest? Um, He still loved her. Figure it out. Yeah, I think the proper response on your part is, ugh. Um, okay, Herod. Herod was, as we said, a foul, vile individual. Yeah, right, right. The, the correct response is sweet. Oh, that, yeah. I mean, be, that's what my response was possible, is in eighth grade. Yes. Okay. So, um, so Miriam's now out of the way. One of the final survivors of the Hasmonean clan, Alexandra, daughter of Hyrcanus, mother of Miriam, with everything she gets, she, she's out of prison. She tries to overthrow Herod. Um, Herod, at this point, has fallen ill. He's grieving over his lost wife. And so he does the Herodian thing and has Alexandra, her followers, and many others slaughtered. Uh, so now you have lots of exes over, over most of the remaining uh, Hasmonean family. Um, Herod with a vengeance now, wants to create a legacy for for himself, he starts building and building, he does, and his buildings, many of which still stand till today, he builds widely all over his empire, theaters and stadiums for Greek spectacles in Jerusalem and elsewhere. Um, In one such theater, there's a story in which seven uh, righteous men, Eurasia who had tried to assassinate Herod, which is understandable, the Jews couldn't tolerate such a wicked man, um, he catches them, he tortures them and kills them together with their wives and children and entire households and then goes on rampages, killing many, many others. He is uh, hes a rampant murderer. He continues building and with uh, so much slave labor, why not? Human life is cheap. It's the fortresses that last forever. He builds, what does he build? He builds a fortress in the north. West of the Temple Mount area that he names for his old he, this he built while his friend was still alive. He names it for his old friend Mark Anthony, and it's called the. Anybody know this? Elon, you would know this. No? Antonio Fortress. Uh, maybe they're ruins. It's more or less when you go through what they call the the, the Kotel tunnels, the West Wall Heritage tunnels, and you exit in the Arab Quarter. You're going out just underneath the area in the northwest of the Temple Mount that they uh, that the, that's where Antonia Fortress stood. So Herod builds this. He builds Sebastia, which is a great palace up in the ancient Shomron. I mentioned that's one of the places I love to guide nowadays. You need an army escort to get there. So he builds up Sebastia. He builds the world's first artificial port city. Namely, he names, it, he names it trying to ingratiate himself to the Romans, Caesarea, Caesarea. Okay, he, named, he, named that, he names it after, after Caesar, after <laughs> Augustus. When I say it's, still, it's, it's a mighty city, it'll be. It's going to play a central role in history. It becomes the capital of of trail for Israel for about 600 periods. 600 years, uh, a a period of about 600 years that runs through about the late Second Temple period, through the Talmudic period, into what we call the Byzantine period. It'll be the central Roman Byzantine stronghold, and when I say it's an artificial port, it's remarkable. The technology is stunning. Who's been to Caesarea went into the actual display yeah. upstairs, and you saw they, they, they through the multimedia visuals, they demonstrate what they think, at least persuasively, uh, the way he did it, how how he built a harbor. See, Eretz Israel in order to have a successful economically vi- viable port, you need a harbor to break the waves so that lots of ships could be docked in port without having to without having the problem of, of massive waves. So he built an artificial artificial wave oh. breaker. And, 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 uh, and it didn't exist before most of the coast of Eretz is exactly that, it's a coast but it doesn't have a natural harbor with the possible exception of Akko the Bay of Akko is sort of protected from, the, from, from aggressive waves but Caesarea not and he builds it and it, it's a stunning achievement, and again, it's, all, it's got uh, statues of idolatry right there in the port as the, as the Romans come sailing in. It becomes a massive, uh, b- an, uh, yet another moneymaker with the import-export business that Herod goes into, and all the subsequent rulers in Herod's Israel will take advantage of it too. That's another one of, the, of Herod's great accomplishments. He builds a fortress that he names for his mother called Kipros, that maybe I'll take you to later this year. It's, uh, it's, it's it, he builds it on top of the ruins of the Hasmonean place, but Herod built an actual fortress uh, that you could look into Yericho. He, um, I'm just citing a few of, the, of his many, many structures. He builds up in the south and it's not clear that he ever visited it. He visited, he built up a place in the south, which he just describes a, a mighty palace, literally at the edge of the world in the middle of the desert. Anybody know what it's called? No, Herodian, he also builds up, but I'm thinking of someplace else, and you all know the name of it. Masada. Mitzada, which is a fortress. It's actually multiple uh, structures. It is a Western palace, a Northern palace. It's a stunning achievement. It's a Herodian achievement, and it's plausible that he never even stepped foot there. And one of the theories that people have, why would Herod go to the end of the world to build a mini Roman city in, a, in, a, in what seems to be a completely forsaken corner of the world? And part of that... Rome, the Roman spirit was alive and well in Herod. Part of that was to be Roman. Because he could. Typically typically Roman. We've conquered. We've, remember what we talked about the Roman ideology. We've. Overcome the evil of the world, the natural order. We've shown we can build a Roman city even in the least likely, least hospitable areas. In the middle of the desert, you've got a whole elaborate Roman city. That's what they did. That's what he did in Masada, Mitzada, and many, many others. Again, he uses Jewish blood, Jewish tax money. He brings non-Jews to inhabit many of these uh, fortresses and, and cities uh and, and 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 this is the herodian country of judea as we find it near the end of the first century in the, before the common era yes daniel that's his masterwork and i'm about to get to that you're you're two steps ahead of me but i'm about to go there right that's we're, we're, i'm just i'm just uh paving the yeah, painting the scene the background before his, his his grand stroke i mean he builds Many people no, feel that the sure. no. structure, the building that surrounds the Mars Machpelah seems to be the Herodian style, so either he built it or somebody copying him built it as well. Many, many other uh, great, great masterworks. I mentioned that in my tour guide training class, we bring in experts on different topics, so the expert on architecture um, spoke, I don't have this, I'm not an architect. So I would not, not be able to make this claim, but he Seemed to know his stuff, and he said, by modern architectural standards, Herod he believes and he believes that he makes a whole argument that Herod actually had a personal hand in building all of these structures and many more um, that Herod probably was the greatest architect of all time. He was brilliant, he was a mastermind at doing this, uh, so evil can be, evil we understand is amoral it could, it could be, it, evil could, could, uh, could mean tremendous talent doesn't doesn 't mean somebody who had any moral sensibility. As we said, he killed off most of the sages, he, he spared Baba Benbuta. he spares Shammai. Shammai, remember, he has a grudging respect for, he saw the man as a strong man and he leaves him alone, and he spares a young uh, Hillel, who's now an emerging figure in Qali Yisrael because he perceives Hillel's immense popularity. Everybody loved him. We're going to, we're going to meet Hillel soon. Everybody loved Herod uh, Hillel, and Herod is concerned about if he does something, maybe that'll lead to a rebellion that he could not manage. Um, most of the most of the Prushim, the, 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 uh, the Torah Jews of the time, are forced to make what's called a Shvos Emunim, some kind of a contract, a pact with Herod to survive, but Hillel and Shammai are not part of that. They refuse. We're going to live an intellectually honest life. We don't want to forge any ties with the wicked Herod. We're talking about this. I'm going to come back to the building of the base of uh, as Herod will do it. Um, but that'll. I'm, I'm taking a break from Herod for the time being because um, it's important to talk about. We're not just living in times of wicked people, but they were immensely uh, important people, Hillel and Shammai. So let's take let's take a look at um, at them for, for a few minutes. Hillel. I mean, a question. Hillel. Remember, comes from Baba, and we were, we've met him. i kind of like. A he lives. He's one of the one of these who lives to be 120 years old. Do you know the five who lived to be 120 20 years old? Well, five famous great Rabe figures. Kiva. Start in order. Who's the first? Moshe, Moshe Rabbeinu. Who's next? Rabbi Akiva. No, no. Who's next chronologically? <laughs> we met him too. He's likened to Moshe. Some, um, some not that long ago. Ezra Ezra, Kibbutz. Ezra is 120. He lives 120 years. Um, next is Hillel. Rabbi Akiva correct, but there's somebody between Hillel and Rabbi Akiva. He's one of Hillel's great students. Rabbi Yochanan ben Zaka. Okay, 120 years. Hillel lives 120 years. Wait, who is it? Rabbi Yochanan ben Zaka. Hillel's family is Mayuchas, as most of the Babylonian families have great yithas. Their family lineage is pure. His father's from Benyamin. His mother descended from the Davidic line. Shaftiel ben Avital was David's fifth son. And uh, and and Hillel can trace his ancestry back, meaning Hillel has semi-royal roots. But since it was on the matrilineal side, it was his mother's side. It means that he couldn't be Mashiach, and his pri- his descendants also couldn't be Mashiach. That's going to go through uh, David's uh, patrilineal descent. Um, and we get that from a pasuk. The pasuk says, uh, by, "By its pasuk in Shmuel says that it's going to come from David Zera, meaning Mashiach is going to be a descendant from the male side um, uh, through, up, up to David." Uh, ah, but no, it was Shmuel. Shmuel Hanavi. Oh. Wow. Pasuk in Shmuel Hanavi. Oh, yeah. Hillel is called the student of Ezra. It's a metaphorical term. Clearly, they lived in different times. Ezra's the very beginning of Bais Shani. We're rounding the corner near the end. Um, he is, uh, but in terms of the greatness of Ezra that's reflected in Hillel, he becomes the Nasi at the age of 80. And for the next 40 years, he'll be the undisputed leader of Klal Yisrael. He is famously destitute, utterly, utterly poor. He was a worker. He cut trees, but apparently that didn't really uh, cut it. That really didn't um, give him so much so much in terms of Parnassa. Um, one of the things Chazal used Hillel as an example that poverty is no excuse. You still have to learn a lot of Torah. Well, I'm poor. We have to. yeah. Well, Hillel was poor too, and so he learned. He learned and and, and managed somehow himself. Uh, the days today are kind of different than back then. Yeah, right. We're so much better off than poor people then. So if they can nice. do it, all oh, the more so we should. <laughs> you just disproved, I think, the argument you were trying to make. Uh, There's an episode that tells us that they were sitting once in Yericho, a convocation of of the Chachamim, and as they were sitting together, a baskol, remember we don't have prophecy anymore, but we still, uh, heaven spoke to us by way of a baskol, a heavenly voice, proclaims in their midst sits a man who is worthy like Moshe Rabbeinu to receive the Torah, only your generation isn't worthy. And nobody says a word Instead, everybody simply looks at Hillel. It's a great image. It was, it was known, it was undisputed. Who is such a person? As, as great as this, it must be Hillel. Actually, Hillel had not yet, uh, I should tell the story of his rise, when he became Nossi, didn't happen overnight, and people didn't know that he was the next in line to be the leader. The figurative leaders of the Israel, for many, for this dark period, the... Antipatros at, uh, um, the and then Herodian p- figure, they had done away temporarily with official Zugos. The, the non-official leaders of the Sanhedrin were called the Bnei Visayra, the sons of, of Um They were not in the line of the Masayra. And they got stuck on an issue one day. They didn't know, it was a certain Friday, Yud-Gimel, the 13th of Nisan, not Friday the 13th though, no such thing in Judaism, Uh, but it was Friday the 13th of Nisan and they didn't know whether uh, um, um, in that particular instance they could check the Korban Pesach on the next day which was Shabbos and it was Arab Shabbos and they were in a quandary maybe we should do it today, maybe we should wait till tomorrow, it wasn't clear and there's a lot writing on this what do we do Uh, it's Mitzvah D'Ereisa Hillel had come up from Bavel and he brings a Kalvachomer he says, listen we know that the korban tummi the daily offering, has to be offered b'mo'ado, and that they can bring it, and it overrides Shabbos in Yontif. And so if that's true, all the more so, uh, this is, that's every day, all the more so a temporary korban, like the Korban Pesach, can override the Shabbos. And he says this Kavachomer, it's really logical, very reasonable, but they're skeptical. And then he tells them, I have this, not on my own, Testimony, but I'm this is part of the mesorah that I received from Shmayan of And they say, How did you learn all that from Shmayan of And you remember how Hillel learned from Shmayan of you know, from the window on the ceiling that he because he, he was too poor to enter the base measure, so he froze on Shabbos taking notes and uh, not taking notes, taking mental notes and, and, and absorbing their whole mesorah. And when he says it in Shmayan of in their humility, they say, you are a great man, you're greater than we are, and we're going to appoint you. You're going to be even higher than we are, and Hillel ascends to the Nisius. That's the story, and the story is actually a reflection on their greatness. They're cited among the three ambas- great sunning of all time. Do you remember the other two? Oh, one actually we've met, and one we're, we're about to meet. Who is the other great Anbasan? And it's a similar kind of thing where he defers to somebody who he was next in line for authority, but he sees his friend as much, as far superior to him. I know you got it. I know you got it. Anybody know it? Anybody else? Any other than Barak? It's many years ago. Yonasan. Yonasan defers to David. Yonasan is the first of the Anbasanim, and the third we haven't met yet. Do you remember? No, yeah, but what was that word? Anbasan, humble one. Anav, Anav. Anav, Anav Nikolada and it was in uh thought that Shaw was extremely humble. too Shaw so was also very humble but he's not cited among the the most humble of all time. Um, so now Hill is, is Hill is the official Nazi. um the temptation here is to talk about Hillel for the, next of the, for the rest of the year, which we, without any problem, could do. I'm not going to do that, but at least I want to give you some of Hillel's greatest hits. Uh, some, some of his, his, his teachings and his, his examples uh, that he's, he's famous for. He teaches a lot in Pirkei Avos. He says, and he, you know, when a Gadol teaches something in Pirkei Avos, it's not his calendar wall saying and it's not like he invented the idea either. These are ideas in Pirkei Avos that are timeless. Rather, when we learn from Hillel in Pirkei Avos, we know that he embodied, he embodied this idea. So here, here are a few of the statements in, 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 that he teaches in Pirkei Avos. Um, he says, never be angry. And we know this is true about Hillel. Hillel was never, notoriously, never, never angry in a, in a great way. Uh, he would never become angry, never allow himself to be angry. He loved people, and he taught. We, we in, in, in uh, following his model, should love people, we should bring people close to the Torah. Uh, the Gemara and Shabbos illustrates all of these stories. You know this Gemara and Shabbos, Right, right. Three stories, not just one. Three converts come, and they're chased away by Shammai, but Hillel embraces them. And um, when the three converts meet up at the end of the story, uh, they say that the Kapidanus, the strictness of Shammai, almost chased them from this world. But because of Hillel's generosity of spirit, his Anfasonus, his humility, he brought them under the wings of the Shechina. And uh, we see all of these things in one of the cases... The man. The man made a bet that he was um, going to make Hillel angry on Arab Shabbos, four hundred zoos at stake, and he tries all kinds of uh, obnoxious ruses to. And Arab Shabbos, I don't know about you, it's a pretty stressful time. But nothing could, could, could penetrate Hillel and, and could penetrate his cool exterior, his unflappable, uh, his love of people, and uh, nothing would get him angry. And you see, he was. He didn't just teach it; he lived it. That was. That was w- the way we're supposed to be as well. Um, he is. Listen, amvasanus, humility, modesty, is the quality of our leaders. Think about Avram Avinu. Avram Avinu is v'anochi afar I'm just, I'm just uh, dirt and ash. Moshe and Aaron are marked by the statement v'nachnuma, who are we? David a says tolas v'lo'ish, I'm a worm and not a man. So we see our greatest leaders were great in their smallness. Um... Hillel is similarly great in many, many areas. He articulates an idea. Um, he says in to avi." <laughs> What's hateful to you, to your friend, don't do. He tells the prospective convert, this is the essence of the entire Torah. It's qu- often people quote that section, and they leave out the critical last two words. The last two words, v'idach perusha, excuse me, the last four words, v'idach perusha zilg'mor. The rest is commentary, go now out go out and learn it, now you're just beginning. People say the rest is commentary and don't bother. No, 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 bother. Go out and learn it and master it. Um, the Christians will later expropriate that and plagiarize that idea and teach it <laughs> as their golden rule and they quoted to, they quoted the book of Matthew Chasar yeah, <laughs> Shalom But um, they were simply plagiarizing from Hillel, who taught it first and earlier. uh, This this obvious basic idea—it's the negative inversion of the Hafda LeReacha Kamocha, what what you should love your neighbors yourself. Hillel was putting it more modestly to a prospective convert: at least don't do to the guy what he hate, what you hate in yourself. And a lot of Avos is uh, quoted in uh, in the New Testament. You bet, you bet. They they they, at least they ripped off from the best. At least they knew where to uh, knew where to plagiarize from. He teaches in Birke Abos, If I'm not for myself, who's going to be for me? Um, And if I'm only for myself, then what am I? A balancing act of morality that a person has to know when to give and when not to give. And if he completely gives it, if the doctor is only curing patients all day long, neglecting his own health, he might die a premature death and won't be available to help many of the people in the future that he could have helped had he taken care of himself. But the other extreme is much worse, if I'm only for myself, what am I? And if not now, what? Right, and you have to get started now, and um, we're not, this is not doing justice to any of these statements, but we can't meet Hillel without at least uh, contemplating his greatness and his legacy of, of Torah, of Midos, of, of fineness as an individual. When With Hillel, um, they appoint, he's the Nosi. And they appoint as the Abvastian, the second man. Remember this is the last of the Zugos. The second man of course that they appoint with Hillel? Shammai? Not Shammai. Oh no, this is the first. Time. And you know I'm setting you up, you already get my you get my tricks, right? I know, I know so it's no it's Hillel and Menachem. Little interesting, little known factoid of history. And uh, Menachem actually goes off the derech and he winds up serving Herod. So he leaves the scene very soon. The next up for the position is Akavia ben Mahalalel, who is at Sadiq. He has his own mission in Piriabos. Um, but he has a different problem. He refuses to reel to the majority the whole mission in, in Eidu, Eiduyos. He, uh, Akavya won't yield to the majority will, so that's when they appoint Shammai. Shammai becomes the official of the last of the Zugos, the last pair to lead Klal Yisrael. They are together the 30th, Hillel and Shammai, 30th in line in the Mesorah. If you look at your Mesorah sheets that I passed out, you can count it. There are a clean 30. They Each of them were students of Shammai and Avtalya, and they received the entire Torah, from of and Avtalion, um, and something changes now. Shama and Hillel, Hillel and Shammai continue the one Machlokas that it lasted, of course, the Machlokas is about, smicha <laughs> on the Korban, but as a sign of the declining times, this generation now knows three new arguments, three, three new subjects of Machlokas, about different Takanos. They're all ashamed Shemaim, but there are three new arguments between Hillel and Shammai, which is not good. I mean, in general, in terms of what it reflects, it, the, the, they argue on the ninth day of Adar, which becomes a fast day, because the fact that you have a breakout of these new arguments means less clarity of Torah. That's not a good thing for the Jew, for the Jews. Um, they're very technical arguments. They have to do with the amount of khala, that one gives to a Kohen, Shammai says it's a Kav, Hillel says it's two Kav, it's Kabayim, it's two Kav. Uh, the Halacha follows neither of them. It's Kav achetzi, one and a half Kav. Uh, another machlokas has to do with in a mikveh, you know that, Sudyeh, right? How much, how much drawn water puzzles a mikveh. Hillel says it's malehin. Shammai says it's nine kabim, different measures. And again, the halacha follows neither of them. The halacha follows another tradition that they, that they receive from Shammai and Abtalya three kabim. Um, the third machlokas has to do with the amount of time after a woman sees blood that she's considered to be metamed to She causes impurity to pure objects, and again, the halacha is not like neither of them. It's a very intellectual, Antiochianist time. Meaning, you have the stature of Hillel and the stature of Shammai, but they knew to follow the majority um, when when it came when push comes to shove. Um, okay, so now you're seeing a breakout of machlokus. Um, in order to correct the system, Hillel recognizes there's a greater urgency, a greater need than ever for this growing system of Torah Shebalte, of the oral Torah previously now you know how this has been happening before. this is very important those of you who kind of lost track today wake up pay attention the oral torah has been transmitted continuously and that's why we keep tracing the mesorah this becomes even more critical in these unfolding times of the mission and, and, and the gemara previously the oral torah was this ever-expanding system to try to understand how we're supposed to live a lo- live our lives and apply the written Torah. the oral torah was organized, as it were, in, um, in 400, and some say 600 different units. And it was too massive. And so recognizing that people can't take this, the, cl- the times are declining, Hillel reorganizes them into what's called the Sidre de Mishnah, the orders of the Mishnah, and rearranges them into a neat, how many? Six. Count them, six orders of the Mishnah, what we call... Shisha, Sidrei, Mishnah, or in shorthand, Shas. Shas, Shas in, the, in that organization, comes from Hillel. Hillel has 80 students. This is Mar 30 of whom are described as being so great, the Shekhinah could have dwelt with them like it dwelt with Moshe Rabbeinu. Mm-hmm. Now, that's something you want on your resume. I mean, I don't know about your resume, and I wouldn't you know, mind. Oh, well, the Shekhinah dwells like with Moshe Rabbeinu. 30 the next didn't quite make it to there so they they weren't so good they rather um the sun would have stood still with them like it did for yoshua the greatest of his 80 students was anybody know yonasan ben uziel the great translator targum yonasan ben uziel the smallest of his 80 students Meaning the lowest of the ranking. They all students back in the day were all ranked. Remember how the Sanhedrin sat? Each one knew exactly where he sat. He was number forty-three, not forty-four, not forty-two, but precisely forty-three. It was all very clearly uh, ranked. Um, we wash my machronim like that too. If you have a hundred people, the people supposed to wash my machronim first are the lowest level. Chachamim, going in, in, in ascending order, so that the people who are, because you're not supposed to speak after washing so the people who are quiet, the longest, are the least knowledgeable in Torah. So it went it went in pecking order. Who is the least of all of the students of the Gemara and Sukkah? Well, you might not have heard of him. Just Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai. Who we're going to see is one of the greatest Jews of all time, he lived 120 years, so it's hard to understand what the Gemara is really talking about. Uh, the Gemara even says, Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai himself, and if he's like this, how much more? The other 79. He never stopped once learning. Mikra, that's psukim, Mishnah, Gemara, Halacha, Agada, and Maiser Merkava, which is the great Kabbalistic secrets of the universe. He had it all, uh, but that was nothing. You know, when, when Yonasan ben Uzziel, they're all in first names still, when Yonasan ben Uzziel sat learning, <coughs> the Gemara says, birds flew over his head, and burned spontaneously, combusted. Do you know this, Kamara? Yeah. Famous Kamara. People go up to mukha nowadays. Amuka is a place where people go when they need a shiddah, uh, because it's a school to go up in daven by the kever of Yonasan Yon- of Ben Uziel. Um, so I tell this story when we're up there. So the birds would burn. And the explanation the Gemara gives is, is that um, because the angels were enraptured by his Torah and they would gather to live to listen to Hidushin, sanctification, Yonasan ben Uziel, uh, and when the birds would fly into an angel, I guess that burned them. That was the shot there. Uh, Yonasan, just to give you a sense of how great Hillel was, his great student Yonasan um, <coughs> gives the Targum on the Navim. On the prophets, it's, if you look at the page of the of, of uh, Nah, of Navi and Ksuvim, so Yona Seminuziel is is a, he gives the authoritative Aramaic translation, and when he gave it, Eretz Israel had a massive earthquake, four hundred parsos shakes, uh, because he was about to reveal divine secrets, namely contained in which book? Give uh, Magilla, Daniel. Think of Daniel holds eschatological secrets, and when he was about to reveal them, the earthquake, and he stopped before he could reveal the secrets of Daniel, uh, and therefore there's no Targum Yonasan, unsafe on, on for Daniel. Um, there is, people confuse it, there's another tar, um, Targum Yonasan Ben Uziel, but it's clearly a later person, a later Tana, not the same, who wrote on the Torah. Um, A little bit more on Sham, We haven't met Shammai at all. These are, these are the great days we're living in. Just a little bit on Shammai, and that'll, that'll, we'll call it a day. Shammai, remember, is a kaptan. He's the one who chased away those three prospective converts. And sometimes I think he, he's a misunderstood gaggle. He is a kaptan, meaning he was exacting. That's what kaptan, he's makpid. We, we, we use the lasagna of makpid in very positive terms. Somebody who's makpit in mitzvahs is careful with mitzvahs. That was the care that Shammai had when he's makbid. He's makbid for covering the Torah, for honoring the Torah. Um, but in general, Chazal painted him not like that. He wasn't like a strict, harsh personality. Quite the contrary, he had a very gentle manner. Think about it. Shammai teaches in Pirkei Avos, Veheve Mekabal as Kol Ha'adam, the saver avos. When you greet a man, you greet a man with, with a sweet, kind countenance. Meaning, he didn't just teach that, but he lived it. He embodied that idea. He was humble, he, was, he, he loved his students, and he always fought for their own kavod. He, wasn't care, he, he didn't care about his own personal kavod. Um, we know that, that Hillel, Hillel and Shammai, in the times of, of uh, great persecution under Herod, Torah study will start to increase, and that's a novelty. Remember, through most of the Second Temple period, Torah study has, has suffered, and now they're going to build up Torah study, and they do it through these great schools that they found, of course, the schools called Bechil El Bech Shammai. They presided over their academies. They're the first large yeshivas ever. <coughs> We've had, we've had other yeshivas, but these are organized institutions where, where Jews flocked now to come if the material world was a world of oppression and, and murder and uh, Herodian mischief, so now the base medrash became all the more attractive. People flocked to learn about spirituality by Hillel, by Shammai, Beis Shammai had great sages in his school were Bava ben Buta, who we've mentioned before, Dusta, Ishkfar, Yasmeh, and others. Um, they were all characterized as Kapdanim too. Hillel's, Beis Hillel was known for his generosity of spirit, his kindness to other people. Um, in Beis Shammai, they were very, very uh, makpid, and we don't pask in halacha generally like Beis Shammai. Usually the halacha follows the uh, Hillel with some exceptions but they were all ashamed Shammai. and the last story I'll I'll say for today to capture what is the Kapodonos of shamah and base shamai so the story is told about baba ben buta who is a who is a macpid individual um, and in, and the story goes like this uh, an angry babylonian tells his wife go break a jug of water on top of the gateway and the Russian in aramaic is alrisha de bava on top of the gateway but this wife, I guess, none too um, intelligent, this particular Babylonian woman, and she heard on the gate, on al the Bava was not in the gateway of the city, but rather on the head of Bava ben Buta. So she does, as her husband asks, and she goes over and takes a heavy jug and smashes it on Bava's head. Yeah. And Bava turns to her, and this is what a Kaptan did. He was very gentle and, and praised her. He blesses her. He said, uh, Praiseworthy, praiseworthy is a woman who, who follows out her husband's wishes. It's Kamar Abroad and Nadarin. So, uh, you know, be, do, don't, don't jump to conclusions about, about when they say kapta, and what that really meant. It was, uh, they, they were huge, immense siddiqui, both of them, all of them, in, 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 this, in this harsh period under Herod. And Daniel, you pointed out that, uh, you know, how then is Herod the one in Zulfa to rebuild the base of Mikdash? That's a question we'll have to address tomorrow.